Good morning to each of you. Uh, I confess it uh, is a little strange, feels a little strange to me, uh, to arrive just in time to preach. It uh, <clears throat> feels like I didn't have time to uh, worship with you a little bit first. Um, this morning I would like to do something that I've never uh, done before, talk about something I've never uh, spoken about before um, in public. Uh, something that I would guess most of us have never really thought about very much. Uh, the title of my sermon is <clears throat> Lent Lessons. Uh, the first word there is spelled L-E-N-T, Lent. Let's see, some of you are smiling, nobody fainted. <laughs> so uh, uh, we can continue, can we? Uh, I want to explain Lent and focus on what Christ experienced uh, on his journey to the cross, which is what this thing called Lent is supposed to help us do, and consider a few lessons that we can learn from his journey. Uh, first of all, what, what is Lent? Uh, well, it's a 40-day period prior to Easter. And it begins on what is called Ash Wednesday. And it varies when it starts, of course, and when it ends, depending on when Easter is, which varies uh, depending on, uh, well, I won't go into that. And Lent usually skips uh, Sundays, uh, although there's... Um, some diversity there, and I won't explain that either. See, I'm leaving some things for you to look at later. Uh, and this, this year, Lent began on February 10, and it ends um, on March 26, the day before Easter. Uh, <clears throat> Now, you might be thinking that, uh, I don't know why he's talking about Lent, because that's a Catholic thing. Uh, actually, that's, that's not true. It's not just a Catholic thing. Uh, it, it originated uh, in the early days of the church, and uh, its purpose was to uh, help people remember uh, Easter, prepare for Easter, and remember um, the journey of Christ in his own life to Easter, to the crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, the intention was to help people commit themselves uh, to Christ in a new way and evaluate their faith and help them uh, think about ways that they could prepare 
especially in the early days of the church, uh, for baptism, which has been lost largely, that focus. So uh, it was also, Lent also began <clears throat> with the idea of focusing on uh, it was based on Christ's temptations, 40 days of temptations in the wilderness. And so uh, in, in what's called the church calendar, which I won't explain that either, uh, we are in the last part, the last two weeks of Lent. Because uh, there's two weeks from now until Easter. Uh, many believers around the world... Um, observe Lent. I doubt that many of us have. Uh, we hardly know what it is, I'm, I'm thinking. Uh, maybe I'm just basing that on my own knowledge or thoughts about it. And uh, as I said, we, pr we might think about it as a sort of a Catholic practice. Uh, but again, Lent, Lent is a six-week season of soul-searching. This is its purpose. Soul-searching, examination, reflection. Uh, and a time for repentance. There's a large emphasis on repentance. A season for reflection on the suffering of Christ what he endured on his journey to the cross, reflection on our own journey with Christ as a believer in a season of preparation uh, to celebrate the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection in our own lives. Uh, so during Lent, many people observe a period of fasting uh, repentance, moderation, self-denial, and spiritual discipline. Some of that might sound odd to us, but the purpose of all of these activities are, there's two things involved. The one is uh, to focus more um, intentionally on Jesus, on his, on his life, uh, his suffering leading up to the cross, his suffering on the cross, uh, to help us focus on that and to help us focus on our own spiritual journey and our embracing of whatever the truths are that relate to Christ's death and resurrection. And the idea is that uh, in this time of, um, well, I'll use the term self-denial, moderation, uh, we will be freed in some way to focus more on Christ and less on ourselves and our own uh, desires and pleasures and uh, self-satisfaction. Uh, much, much could be said about uh, how different people observe 
uh, Lent, but I will. I won't do that this morning. I want to focus on what Christ experienced on his journey to the cross and the lessons of his journey for us. I want to start with um, in Matthew with the temptations in the wilderness. And uh, this will have to be brief. I'm starting here because this is the uh, basis for the idea of Lent. Uh, We have, of course, we know, I think we all know the story, the the account fairly well. We have three temptations here, and uh, the first, without reading, I will just mention each one in turn. Uh, The first one, uh, the temptation to turn stones into bread. And the ten- this temptation, I believe, is to fulfill God-created desires apart from or in violation of God's will. The way God would want us to fulfill them, to fulfill them without cooperating with God in whatever his intention is in this desire that he created in us. Of course, you could take... Food, which is a God-created desire for food, and he's placed this inside of us. It's the way our bodies work. It's the way he created them to work, and it's a wonderful thing. Yes, it is. Uh, In this type of temptation, the devil offers a a non-God, a wrong way to fulfill this God-created desire. And I think I'd say even this God-created need, it's a need. Without it, we would die. Um, And so God has created our physical, emotional, and spiritual longings and needs, desires, whether for food and water or relationships, uh, many, many things very basic to our uh, welfare. And these God-created desires and needs are good and legitimate. The wrongness lies in fulfilling them in a wrong way, in a non-God way. And so we have turned stones into bread. Uh, We commit this kind of sin when we want life to be without any pain or sacrifice or death. When we try to bypass the normal uh, toil, work, trouble, thistles, effort, sacrifice, uh, when we would like to be able to milk cows, yes. And they never kick, and uh, they never do anything you don't like. Um, So make everything be pleasant for me. Make life be painless. Uh, We meet this temptation well when when we cooperate with the way God wants to supply our needs. So, example, we work for our food. 
we, we learn to uh, work within a, a God-ordained structure. Uh, and for example, we learn that what God wants is in relation to sexual intimacy is to practice that in marriage and not outside. So we, we seek to trust God with our needs, with our desires. And, and so we meet this temptation by cooperating with God's normal way, uh, whatever he said about, about meeting our needs. The second temptation, throw yourself down from the highest point of the temple and expect your father to protect you from disaster. <clears throat> now, as I uh, read that, I think the thought came to me as I read that, oh, hmm, that could have a few implications for how we drive our vehicles, you know, too fast around the corners and expect God to take care of us no matter uh, you know, how foolish and uh, unwise and uh, lack, lack of good judgment, okay? The temptation to demand God-promised care and protection without submission and trust. And uh, maybe without taking responsibility and being responsible. We commit this kind of sin when we test the Father's love doubt the Father's promises, presume on, or demand the Father's care and protection without doing what the Father wants us to do in these circumstances. And of course, we, we do well in this temptation when we do as Christ did in the garden in his, prior to the crucifixion. We struggle with the Father in prayer as he did to discern his will and we yield to the Father's will and find um, energy, courage, hope in the midst of great testing and distress. Uh, the third temptation Worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And this is a temptation to pursue God-promised authority without service and humility. And we commit this kind of sin when we want to lead out of a position of power from a distance without relationship, when we demand that others listen to us and obey us, but refuse to listen to them, and when we want others to serve us, but refuse to serve others. When we want others to trust us without us trusting God or them. And uh, the way we treat, uh, face this temptation is to serve as Christ served. Uh, to, to endure the difficulties and the uh, pressures, the temptations of our responsibilities the way Jesus did. 
and Christ's victory over these temptations becomes the foundation, it was the foundation, the basis for his victory in life, in the temptations, the struggles, the troubles of life. Now, I'm not sure, <clears throat> I'm not sure that we actually uh, understand the troubles that Jesus experienced in his journey to the cross, especially the last months. I have two uh, passages I would like to look at briefly this morning. The one is in Luke 9, and uh, I'm not sure but what uh, some of your Sunday school classes looked at uh, some of these. I'm going to use Luke 9 and Luke 19. Uh, Luke 9, 51 to 56, the first one, and I'll read it here. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that is his ascension, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, that is to go to Jerusalem to be crucified, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, <clears throat> but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one. Having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, if I understand correctly, these events took place prior to this thing that I'm referring to as Lent. Uh, it may have been three or four months prior, and it may have been earlier than that. Uh, but they, they represent the journey of Christ. I chose this because it specifically says, now he knew that the time was come, and so he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face. Um, I remember, I, I think I'm right about this, sometimes my memory is a little <laughs> foggy. I, I, I remember Brother Milton talking about this one time many, many years ago. I might have been a child, I'm not sure, but he said, he said, 
that the idea of set his face, uh, it, it meant set one's face like a flint. He used the word flint. Well, it, it is. It is speaking of that. It's, it's a resolute commitment. That's the idea. To resolutely set one's gaze and purpose on something and to be unwavering in it. The time had arrived that this thing should happen and he knew this was the time and so he resolved to do it. Uh, in verse 53, the people did not receive him as he journeyed along. So there was opposition, and this is a recurring theme in this journey of Jesus to the cross. Opposition. Opposition. And what do you do with opposition? Well, maybe we're tempted to do what James and John suggested, call down fire from heaven. <clears throat> Pardon me. Curse them. Okay, that was what it, the idea was. This is our normal response to opposition and trouble. Curse them. We can do without you. Uh, then in verse 57, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, you know, the phrase that comes to my mind when I read that is famous last words. I will follow you wherever you go. And you know, and I know, that's not what they did. No, they didn't. None of them did that. And so, reflection. We need to reflect on that. Will we follow Jesus wherever he goes? <clears throat> and maybe I should say that <clears throat> where he's going in relation to you may not be where he's going in relation to someone else. So, will you follow him wherever he wants you to go? Wherever he's calling you to go. In verse 62, how about this one? Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Set your face to the task and go forward. <clears throat> and... Um, now what that reminds me of is long ago, uh, forgive me for the long agos. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know, this five bottom plow and this tractor and the way, the way you start the furrow in the field is the way, is the way it goes. Yes, it is. And so what we would do, what I would do is sit at the end of the field and calculate, let's see, where, how many different rows do I want to do I want to do this in one section wide or two wide and how do I do this so that the furs this whole thing comes out right and the way you did it the way I did it is look down the field to a spot at the end and try not to look at anything else all the way down there and try to go in a straight line course that's unless you are doing the contour thing so put your hand to the plow and don't look back of course they were 
plowing behind something and I was in front of it. Go forward. Set your eyes on the goal. <clears throat> and do we do that? Put your hand to the plow. And so this, this is Jesus in the beginning, the beginning of this journey. Uh, intention, intention. Knowing what the goal is and where he need, need, needs to go. And knowing uh, something of what has to happen to get there. Uh, much intention. And then we have... Uh, <clears throat> Well, I want to look at several other things before Luke 19. I, I thought I only had two, but I have three. In Luke 13, uh, Luke 13, 22 to 24, and then Luke 14, 27, uh, it reads this way. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there a few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, great multitudes, get that. Uh, it reminds me of Palm Sunday and great multitudes praising Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So he's journeying toward Jerusalem, and nothing has changed, all right? The idea here with strive, strive, that word has the idea of put forth much effort. The idea of seek is half-hearted effort. So the call is to strive, to put forth, maybe we would say honest effort sincere effort, full intention effort, as opposed to the many who seek in a half-hearted way to journey with Jesus. And Jesus is saying here that the people who seek in a half-hearted way, they don't journey well. Now, I feel like I need to uh, say a little something to clarify that. I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone journeys well simply by self-effort. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. But without striving, that's what Jesus said, without effort, we don't journey well. And then anyone who does not bear his cross. <clears throat> uh, we have that in 14, chapter 14, verse 27 as well. He cannot be my disciple. 
And uh, you might wonder what, your, what the cross is. Well, I want to say the cross is not the hard things of life. It's more. Those are hard things. But the cross is more the challenge of surrendering to the Father in the hard things. Trusting God in the hard things. Giving up on living life my way in my own strength. Giving that up is a cross. Not demanding our way. <clears throat> Take up this cross. And of course, the implication is this is the cross of Christ. Now in Luke 19, uh, verse 28, uh, it says, uh, I'm breaking in the middle of something. It says, when he had said this, he went on ahead. He went on ahead. <clears throat> Going up to Jerusalem, he went on ahead. And I believe, if you read the story carefully, uh, what you see is that he went on ahead and led them because they were scared to go. They were scared. They, were, they, they didn't know what to do with his face set like flint to go to Jerusalem. They didn't know what to do with his comments about, I'm going to die. They did not know what to do with Jesus. It didn't seem to fit what they thought should be. Um, and in this account, he, he gives the instruction about finding a coat uh, that's never been ridden and uh, bring it to me. And if anyone says, why are you doing this? You say to him, because the Lord has need of it. <clears throat> and so they brought him the coat, the coat, and he rode it. And uh, they threw their own clothes on the coat, and they set Jesus on him, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave, it, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And uh, then we have the um, cleansing of the temple account. Um, so he went ahead, he led the way. He made this prediction that was, uh, it came true about the coat, and he was praised and worshiped as he, as he rode along. 
but that was only temporary. See, it didn't last long. Uh, uh, maybe some of us by now, we know that uh, praise and ad adulation is a fickle thing. It can change very quickly. Uh, we're, not, we're not sure we understand. Probably most of us wonder about the mob spirit that we see here, that the week, the week of Christ's crucifixion. We have the resistance of religious leaders. And so what, what do we think about in this time of year leading up to Easter? Uh, the idea of spending the 40 days prior to Easter preparing for the crucifixion and resurrection, in my view, is not a weird idea. Uh, if I can use the word, Lent. It's a time when you can remember the testing, the trials, the temptations, the troubles that Jesus experienced in the months preceding his death. And anything you do, anything, such as Bible reading, prayer, uh, fasting, that helps you focus on the work of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus, the meaning of those sufferings. Anything that you do that helps you uh, think about, meditate on, focus on, areas in your heart and life that you need cleansing, growth, repentance will certainly be beneficial. Uh, I want to say this. Uh, <clears throat> I'm older than many of you. I'm not old, though. <laughs> yeah. Not sure when you get old. Uh, uh, but the one, one thing that I um, think about is that since I have, since we have moved back to Virginia to Gladys, and, uh, and my life has changed, one thing I've discovered is that I think I have more time, more space is my word, uh, to consider my own thoughts and feelings about whatever's going on around me that involves me and I think I think I uh, maybe have more space to to see uh, the ways that uh, I'm responding or living that are not really I'll say godly or helpful okay so so what I want to say here is that let, let's have the courage Let's have enough courage and hope in God um, to take the time to think about our own lives. Christ's life teaches us that fulfillment of God's will and of one's life purpose requires a lot of suffering, a lot of dying, a lot of growing, a lot of repenting, a lot of unselfish living. And so this is our opportunity. So we have set, have you, 
Well, I shouldn't say we have, I should ask. Have you set your face toward Jerusalem and put your hand to the plow? Do you know something of God's purposes in your life as you travel along? And if you understand some of the purposes, are you following Jesus in his direction? Now, <clears throat> my time is up, passed up, and so I will give you one more thing. Um, I, the passage Isaiah 66, 10 to 14, Isaiah 66, you might want to read that this afternoon, and I offer you that because... Uh, that passage is also a part of, for many people, uh, Lent readings of Scripture. Isaiah 66, 10 to 14. And I give that to you because it talks about uh, rejoicing, not just the sad things, but rejoicing. And in order to help you want to read it, I will tell you that it has a phrase in there about milking out. And uh, of course, that gets pretty close to uh, dairy farming. You read that and see Isaiah 66, and the Lord bless you.